Hi, and welcome to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. We're headed into the All-Star break, so we've had a super-sized show with two player guests talking shop, Hunter Renfro from the Red Sox and Luis Guillorme from the Mets. And then after that, we're talking college baseball and the top prospects in the MLB draft. Hunter Renfro is in his first season with the Red Sox. He had a nice bounce back from 2020 when he struggled a bit with the Rays. He's looked good at both the plate and in the field. Five defensive runs saved at the time that we're taping this. Uh, Hunter, thanks for joining us. Your admission ticket to the interview, we like to say, is we always ask someone to give us an early memory. As in, when's the first time in your life, whether it was as a little kid, high school, legion, whatever, that you can remember making a really good throw? You know, it's funny, you know, I always was a catcher growing up. So I was number one, a catcher. Then I'd go in the outfield on my days off, basically. So I was a catcher all the way up through high school into my college career. So I really prided myself into throwing guys out from home plate, uh, second base, third base, you know, when they, you name it. And obviously, when I got to play the outfield, uh, it was always just a plus to throw guys out at home or second or third or whatever. As far as like, you know, throws I can remember, you know, there's quite a few of them in, in college that I really remember and make good throws in the Cogwood series, something like that. So no, none in particular that came up to mind, but uh, there's obviously numerous ones. What's your defense origin story? Like, where did you learn the importance of it growing up? How did it factor into how you played? And I imagine as, as a catcher, you, there certainly was a lot that you had to learn. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was a catcher, obviously I said, and defense was huge. Obviously when I was going from high school to college, you know, I was out competing everybody in high school. And I, obviously when I got to college, I had to become more of a, a all-around player and really focus on my defensive uh, prowess. My sophomore year, our center fielder went down, so I had to go take hold of center field, and our coach came up to me and was like, hey, Hunter, you know, we kind of need you to play center field. I was like, done. I'll go play center field. I'll do whatever I want to do. You know, and uh, that's kind of where I, my outfield story kind of began. And I really took pride on trying to get best, you know, as good as I could in the outfield, you know, for that. And, and uh, it really took some time to really focus on the throwing aspect because – if a guy went, I wanted to throw him out, you know. So I was airmailing balls. I was throwing balls all over the place. And it really took quite a few years to really, for me to really figure out, like, hey, Hunter, just, you know, throw it to the cutoff man, uh, get the ball down. You know, you can get a lot of assists on the backside. If the guy's trying to advance from first to second, if you, you know, hit the cutoff man, the guy redirects the ball and gets the guy out. So, you know, that's a lot of a lot of big things that I, I didn't really understand when I was young but have come into play here uh, the past few years. You're someone who now has a track record at the major league level, particularly in our statistic. Two years ago, you had 19 defensive runs saved for the Padres, and that was a big jump from what you had had previously. Was there something that you did heading into that season that made you a better defender? You know, we really worked hard at spring training on our defense. We knew going into that season that we were going to have a very good outfield. We wanted to show it off pretty well, you know, as much as we could. And it kind of all fell into play. I robbed some home runs, you know, took some balls away from guys. And I threw a bunch of guys out that year and was up for a gold glove. And, you know, it didn't happen for me. But, you know, I think kind of all the things kind of fell into play. You know, you, you can, if you go up there and you rob a three run home run, like you said, it's probably three, you know, three defensive runs saved right there. As far as that, you know, all things fell into play. I made some good plays in the outfield. Got lucky on some balls that probably should have been homers that I was able to catch or, or handle off the wall. And, and it was just, like I said, hard work pays off. And you know, we worked our butts off the spring. This is your first year in Boston. And I'm curious, from a defensive perspective, how the right field triangle and the corner are treating you. Uh, it's fine. You know, like I said, it, it's not too bad. It's more of like a center field to me. It's big. It's it's vast. Uh, you got a lot of room to cover. And, you know, far like the ball's down the line, 
you can't just go in, uh, you know, glove first and just make a play off the wall. You got to kind of have to read the ball off the wall and kind of just take deeper routes toward it and hope it bounces your way. But, you know, other than that, it's just, like I said, it's just big. You know, you got to play the ball in the air and really run the ball down in the gap uh, and hope that your center footer is, is hearing you over 40,000 people on the stands and, and you don't collide and gasp. It's interesting, like I said. It takes a lot to cover, but it is what it is. What about the corner? You had a catch earlier this year. In fact, it was right at the very beginning of the season. You had Tom Murphy of the A's. Can you tell us anything you remember about that one? That little wall, like I tell I think I tell, you know, all the guys that ask me, you know, about my defense stuff. It's like, yeah, I, I go all out. I'm going all out no matter what. And I'm probably going to end up over that little wall more times than not. And, and, you know, that little wall doesn't really scare me anymore. You know, like when I was younger and I was scared of the wall, I was scared of break a ball or break an arm or something like that. I was like, now if it happens, it happens. You know, I'm just going out there at full steam and, and try to run as many balls down as I can and, and try to make great plays for my pitchers and help the team win. Is there a safe way to run into the wall? Now, I say that with you having done it in a couple of instances. You did it once against G-Man Choi. You did it once against Austin Hayes. We've talked to Kiermaier about this specifically. I'm curious, for a guy who's a little bigger than Kiermaier, uh, what it's like to run into a wall and how you handle it. It's interesting, said because I actually hurt myself in 19, running into the wall and hitting it the wrong way, hit it by elbow, and actually re-aggravated my elbow and was hardly... I was 18, excuse me, 18. And it was, you know, couldn't throw the ball anymore. Really injured my elbow, had a inflammation come up in my UCL and stuff like that. And it was really hard for me to throw. But as you say that, you know, when you hit the wall, you hope it's padded, obviously. You know, you want, when you want to hit it and try to roll off the wall and, or some kind of, you know, negate the, you know, the impact of the wall. Or what I do a lot is, is run up the wall and try to just <laughs> keep legs instead of your arms. Uh, legs are a little bit bigger part of your body. So, you know, like I said, you just got to go up there and give it all you can and, and hope you don't hurt yourself. Dangerous living, certainly, uh, out there in the outfield. So StatCast measures a bunch of different things, and you rate above average in a couple of areas. One is the initial read of ball off the bat, and then two is the burst period, which is from one and a half to three seconds after the ball is hit. You're a big guy. You're one of the bigger outfielders in baseball. What are some of the things that you do to make up to compensate for the fact that you're not necessarily a burner? Like I said, I really worked on my first step quickness. First step being as accurate as you possibly can make it towards the ball, toward the point of the ball, toward the end position of the ball. I think that's kind of what I struggled at when I first came into the league is my route efficiency more than anything. It's just, you know, making sure you read the ball first and then making your initial jump toward the ball. And uh, I guess what I really kind of focus on, even in like BP right now, uh, when we go through BP and stuff like that, is is taking the first step, making sure it's accurate and uh, to the point where the, that you want to run. And so, you know, when people get in trouble with this, you take a step and take it over your right shoulder and the ball ends up over your left shoulder and you turn around and make circles and the ball ends up, you know, on the ground. And, and that's kind of what happens to me when I was a little bit younger in my career. And uh, now I just try to focus on making sure it's, the right way and, and try to make sure all my practice is done the correct way. All right. I want to touch on a couple of other throwing things before we let you go. We wanted to talk about your arm and I wanted to talk specifically about a throw that you made on Matt Chapman. That was ridiculous. I saw it last night for the first time. The easiest way to describe it, the ball's hit to, to center in Fenway. Center fielder falls down. You come over all the way from right and you throw a rocket to third base. And I'm laughing because there was a question that was asked of a player earlier this year where the reporter simply said, how? 
And I felt like I want to do the same thing here. How did you do that? You know, it was kind of a thing where mostly off the bat, I was taking like a few little jog steps toward him and I was reading the ball and I was like, that ball's going to help the wall. And I, I knew, you know, the shape of our wall in center field is if the ball hits off the wall and if it hits hard enough, it's going to ricochet toward right field. So I knew I had to go back up, you know, center field and Kike and, and uh, he was going for the ball and not for the carom. So I was running for the carom and the ball happened to bounce perfectly straight to me. And I was able to get enough of momentum behind it and make a good strong throw to third. And, and we got, actually got it. Did anyone say anything to you about that one? Because that one, that one was pretty impressive. Yeah. yeah, that was talked about. All right. On a, on a shorter throw perspective, you mentioned relay man earlier. By our count, I think you have four assists on your own and four with a relay man. What do you do to ensure that you're working well with your relay man? What I try to do is, uh, more than anything, on a longer throw towards, say we relay in toward third base, ball in the gap, more than likely, ball in the gap, Try to get the ball in and out of the glove as quick as possible and try to make sure the you know, I hit one of the relay mans in the in the chest. You know, that's that's the bottom line. I would really like to hit the last guy in the chest more than I would the first guy, but the first guy, if I hit him in the chest, hit him in the chest. But I'd really like to hit the last guy in the chest. Obviously, it's a shorter distance for him to throw the ball, and the ball has to cover a lot less distance to, to be thrown toward third. But, you know, if I'm able to be accurate to the, the second guy, more likely the guy's going to be out or not go. One more defense question and then one hitting question. We'll let you go. What advice, we like to give advice on this show. What advice would you give to kids who want to build their throwing arm? If you want to build your throwing arm, uh, I would really focus on trying to throw as much as you possibly can. Uh, not necessarily throwing the bases every day, but really trying to strengthen your arm, strength up, warming up every single day, lengthen it out, going you know, not just 120 feet going up to 220, 300, as hard as you can, long tossing. And then uh, after you get through the, you know, 220, 300 feet long toss, uh, when you get back into, you know, 90, 60, 90 feet, uh, really try to focus on throwing, you know, with, with momentum, accurate, strong, full momentum, hard throws to whoever you're throwing with. And I think that's, you know, the focus on, you really try to strengthen your arm by, you know, lofting the ball, getting as high and far as you want to. Then when you come back in, you're really trying to focus on throwing line drives and and, uh, and missiles straight to your guy. And, and that kind of what, you know, you don't want to throw lollipops to, to the catcher or the third base. You want to throw hard on a line balls to your cutoff man that happened that goes through the cutoff man. It's a nice one hot ball to the catcher. And that's, that's kind of what I try to focus on more than anything to build my arm strength up and to keep it level it is. Good tips. All right. Last question is a hidden question. You get to play about 100 games a year in Baltimore, Boston, and New York. What's the comfort level for a hitter playing in those parks and knowing that you've got so many games there with such inviting targets as far as the outfield fence distances are concerned? It's obviously nice. You know, we're lucky enough to have some very hitter-friendly ballparks with us. And obviously, you can add in Toronto with that as well. It's obviously those... You know, New York obviously has an incredible bullpen and incredible arms on their staff. So with one comes another, you know. So, uh, you know, those pitchers these days are incredible. Uh, you can't just go up there swing for the fence every time. But, you know, they throw 96 miles an hour and you have to clip them. It's more likely to be a home run no matter where you're playing. You know, that's kind of the thing of mine. It's like it's nice to have the short ballparks in case you get one. But more likely, uh, the pitchers are really, really good. So Hunter Renfro taking home runs away. And hitting them as well. And Renfro, best of luck the rest of the year. Thank you, man. I appreciate it, Mark. Thank you. Luis Guillerme is the Mets' super utility man. He plays some second, he plays some short, he plays some third. 
He's what I'd like to call a likable player because he's very fundamentally sound and he battles, which they actually talked about on the Met broadcast on Monday night. Luis, thanks you for joining us. Your admission ticket to talk to us. What's the earliest great defensive play that you made where you remember that you were praised for your defense? I mean, there, there's a few, but I think, I mean, I couldn't tell you exactly how old I was, but it must have been seven, eight, nine, some, somewhere around there. I think it was a fly ball. I was playing short, kind of to my right, but back in the hole, and I just full-on dove, and I made that play. It was, I think it was a playoff game or something like that. So one, that's one of my earliest, like, really, really good plays when people knew I was good at what I was. Defensively-wise, I think it's just it's crazy to think that I was a kid that played right field because he couldn't do anything when I was really, really little. And I think when I was around five or six, I started working with a coach and my parents and stuff, and that's when we made the move to short. And we started talking about, you know, you're, I was small. I still am, but I was a lot smaller then. It was catch the ball quick, get rid of it as soon as you can. And I think just everything evolved off of that. What was the scouting report on Luis Guillermo, defensive player, age six? Uh, probably not good. I was playing right field, probably chasing butterflies <laughs> or something. So not too good. <laughs> All right. So where did, it, where did it turn for you? You talked about the, this coach that helped you out. Was it like by high school you were like, oh, this is kind of what I'm going to be, what's going to be, be my pathway to get to the majors? I mean, defense started way, way back then. I want to say around eight, nine years old. That's when everything started. We made that switch of let's be quick. Let's get rid of the ball. And I've talked about it before with other people. I had that room in my house in Venezuela when I lived over there. I just had four walls. And I would just throw a ball at every wall, try to see how fast I could do it, bounce it off of this wall, throw it to that wall. Just anything I could do with a ball, a glove, and four walls. So I think that's where everything started evolving. Was there more of an emphasis placed on defense because of where you grew up and the number of really good defensive players that have come from Venezuela? I mean, I, I guess you could say so. You know, like I said, I was I was always a small guy, you know, put the ball in play, but then also I was there to play defense. It got to the point when I was really young that I could pitch too, and I was one of the better players I could pitch, but the coaches didn't like taking me out of the infield to put me in. They'd rather have me out there. So, you know, I think it just evolved that way where defense is always in there for me. And, you know, it got to the point where I want to say maybe two, three, four years ago where I worked less on my defense in the offseason now and focus more on my hitting because I feel really good at where I'm at. But it was something that I worked out till I was 22, 23, where I felt comfortable enough to say, all right, I can stop working on this so much, stick to other things. What was the biggest adjustment that you had to make on the defensive side once you became a pro? For me, I was always quick. I worked with our fielding coordinator when I was in the minors, Kevin Morgan, and, you know, it, it, we, we butted head a little bit at the beginning. You know, we didn't we were on the same page, but his thing was you still can be quick. Now you just got to make sure you can be as quick as you can, but still be under control. So everything I've done since then, I think it was about my second or third year in pro ball in the minors is when I started practicing. I still do it up to this day. I go as fast as I can, but under control during practice. Because when it comes to game time, I can always slow it down. But speeding it up is when I get in trouble. I want to go as fast as I can to know how fast I can go in the game and still be under control. I don't want the game to speed up on me. I want to slow it down. So that that actually takes us to, we, t- we typically talk shop with players. We bring up some plays. We ask players to describe them. One that I wanted to bring up, and you talk about being fast and making plays quick. Nobody throws Cedric Mullins out on a bunt. That guy always gets hits. Uh, mm-hmm. Something like last year, I want to say he was like 9 for 9 or 10 for 10 going for bunt hits. And you threw him out. Do you remember that play? What do you remember about that play? I do. It's funny. He, uh, you know, I was playing in that third. They told me he bunted. I knew he was fast, but I was playing him at the edge of the grass. You know, he actually dropped a bunt down in the first inning, and he actually got a hit. I just ate it. 
it was a perfect bunt, but I was playing a little bit farther back. So the next at bat, I said, he's either going to hit it through me, but he's not going to get on with a bunt again. So I played a little bit more in, like if the edge of the grass was behind me, I want to say I was about 10 feet in front of it. And I just crashed right away. I didn't even think about it, whether he was swing or not. I was just like, as long as he doesn't get a bunt down, I'm happy. So that's what it was. I think I just got a good jump on it, feel the ball the right way, feet were set where I wanted to, and had a good throw on it. What's your approach to defending bunts generally? I think it depends who's bunting, depends who it is. You know, we play a lot of shifts, a lot of stuff. When it's a guy that can bunt and that can run, I want to make him uncomfortable. I don't want him to think that he can do it. Because let's be honest, like I said, I got Cedric out that day, but nine out of 10 times he's going to be safe because of how fast he is, no matter what I do. So I don't want those guys to drop a bunt down. Now, if I'm playing in the shift, and there's a guy that can't bunt really well, or doesn't move too well, I might just give it to him, give him a little bit, make him, if you want a bunt, go ahead. If you're a big guy that's here to hit home runs and you want to drop a bunt down sometimes, go ahead, get the first base, and then we'll just get a double play ball. We have guys that are good at that. So it just depps on the situation on the batter, you know. Uh, second play I want to walk want to walk through was a very impressive one. The relay throw on a play where Jake Marisnik tried to score from first on a single into the gap in the ninth inning of a one run game. He paid a price for testing your arm. You threw a strike to home. You threw the guy out at the plate. That was an interesting play as it developed because I remember watching it thinking he's going to try and score. Uh, I'm curious if you can walk us through what your thought process was on that particular play. Knowing he was at first base, any ball in the gap, any ball on the line, you know he's going to try to score. Um, the spot the ball was hit was a perfect spot for us where you have him at first, you know he's for sure going first to third. So the first thing that comes to mind, which we always talk about, it always happens, is keep the runner at first. You don't want that second and third, you want to keep the double play alive. So when that ball is hit in that spot, I can line up exactly in between throw to second or throw to home. So that helped us out a little bit. So in my head, when that ball is hit, I'm thinking he might go home, but until I hear otherwise, we're going to. As Pilar picks up that ball, he throws it. I can I can hear Lindor saying four four four, and that was just set up my feet a little bit to the side, and just get rid of it. How hard is it to hear your teammates with the roar of the crowd on a play like that? You know, it, it, it's hard. It's happened sometimes where I can't hear anything. I mean, it happened to me last week in Atlanta. I I couldn't hear anything. I just went and made the one play that I thought I could do. So, Lindor, you know, being a double cut, he's pretty close to me in that situation, and it's one of those plays where I'm looking to hear him. Where there's other plays where you you might just be focused on the play and you don't go it. In that play, he's my eyes. I can't see behind me, so I'm specifically just trying to hear him. Okay, and then the third play that I wanted to go through, the third and final one was Phillies were up a run in the ninth inning game about a week or so ago. Steal of third, and it clearly looked like the guy was safe. I was like, "There's no way he's, he's out," except you blocked the bag with your foot. And he couldn't reach it. I've seen other guys do that. Is there some sort of tactic or some sort of trick to it that makes it work? I think it's just getting to the bag at a good time. You know, I always try to take as much as I can from the base from people. So there, I just took a little bit of the outside corner. He just happened to slide it. I mean, it's not going to work every time. It just worked out perfectly that time. But any little thing I can do to give her to give us a little advantage, I'm going to try to do it out there. You, you've had other great defensive plays. One that I know that you've talked about a bunch of times is you caught a bat in spring <laughs> training in 2017. I feel like I have to bring that one up. How did you catch a bat? I mean, honestly, from past experience, usually when people start running around and moving, you duck. That's when somebody gets hurt. So I was paying attention. The bat came flying my way. All I was thinking about, really, honestly, was stopping it. Just kind of touch it, get it away from me. But it was one of those things when, as soon as I did this. The handle hit my hand and it kind of just <laughs> closed. It was like a Venus flytrap. It just hit me, 
caught it, just threw it back. In the moment, for me, when I caught that bat, it felt like I caught it. I looked at it. I looked around and I threw it back and then I watched the video and it was just, there you go. But it felt like an eternity when I caught it. Is that another one of those cases of slowing the game down, though, where you can just slow things down to be able to make a play like that? I guess you could say so. You know, I mean, it's one of those where it's, I want to say 50% luck, 50% skill. You know, I'm not saying I might be able to do it every time, but more often than not, I might catch a bat if I actually tried to. If I'm not mistaken, you you also uh, the other day were caught juggling in the dugout. And it occurred to me that there are a lot of good defensive players that would probably be very good jugglers. Where did you pick mm-hmm. up juggling? I think I was just messing around with the house, really. I'm a guy <laughs> that when I see something, I want to try to do it. I'm going to try my best to do it. So it just took a while. I started with two balls, one hand, and mixed the other left hand, and started just little by little messing around. So, Were you aware that you were on camera for that? Because they were, they were talking about it on TV. Uh, I, I didn't know till I actually, I, I was still on the injured list at, back then. So I went inside just to get something. I think it was a drink or something. It was on TV because we had the big delay and the guys were talking about it. So that's when I found out I had no idea when I was on the field. Okay, I have one more defense question and then one hitting question if I can. What goes into your prep, particularly as it relates to something that you talked about before with defensive shifts? How much work do you do? How much work does the coaching staff do to help you? What goes into all of that for you? You know, I'm a, I'm a guy that I know the the position I'm, I am with the team, so I do a lot of extra work, especially, you know, coming in late in games at different positions. There's there's a lot of work that I can't just do during our practice. So I'm usually out there every day, early work, at third, at short, at second, just mixing in, in and out different different positions, different situations, different runners. We talk about all that, so when it happens in the game, we're ready for it. Is there an angle where you've thrown from this year where you can say, like, hey, the practice paid off, that you were surprised that you were able to make the play from? We've been doing it for a while here. So at this point, I think I'm pretty used to a lot. I mean, the one angle that I've always had to get used to was that third base coming in is the one that from time to time might still give me trouble. I feel comfortable with it, but sometimes it just might not happen how I wanted to, but it's because it doesn't happen very often. And it's a tough play to practice because to do it realistically, you got to go full speed coming in and throwing. It's You can't get a lot of reps with that after getting all that work done. You got to be tired really quick. So that's the only play that I you know, have to work on consistently like that. Well, as we said before, you made it work well with Cedric Mullins. All right, one hitting thing. I've noticed that when you come to bat, whether it's 22 pitches against Jordan Hicks in spring training, which was outrageous, or whether it's just in a bat like last night you got to hit, I always feel like the pressure is on the pitcher when they pitch to you as opposed to the pressure being on you. And I'm curious how you think in at bat out as it happens, such that that's the case, that it becomes the pitcher kind of maybe getting in his head a little bit, trying to, to get you out. You know, I think I've always been the guy that sees a lot of pitches. I'm, I'm looking for that one pitch in one spot early, you know, battling when I have to. But I always try to be relaxed at the play. I always try to, you know, be calm. Just I want to be in control. I don't want the guy to dictate what I'm going to do. I want to take my good swings on the pitches that I want to swing at. So I think that's that's what takes me out there and lets me have those good deep at bats. You know, sometimes you got to be a little more aggressive. Sometimes you don't, depending on situations. But that's the mentality that I go out there is I'm in control. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm not going to let you dictate my at bat. Do you, can you tell when you're uh, at the plate whether or not the pitcher is getting frustrated and getting a little irked at, at how I, good you've battled? I think it's just there, there's a lot of guys where you'll know what their primary and secondary pitches are. Those are their go-tos and I know at bats when guys start throwing me those one pitches that they've thrown 1% all season, 
I know they're going to try to mess around because their stuff wasn't working at that moment. Doesn't mean they're not going to go back to it. But when those guys start messing around, throwing stuff they haven't thrown, that's when you know that they're like, all right, I got to I gotta mix something in here. I got to get his eye off of that. I got to get his eye level to change, his timing, everything. Luis Guillermo, the Super Utility Man. Thank you for joining us. Fun at the plate, fun in the field as well. We appreciate it. No problem. We welcome in Brandon Chu and Dominic Ricotta, two of our video scouts who hit up our MLB draft coverage on the Sports Info Solutions blog. We've previewed the top 10 college prospects there. They've written those along with Adam Land. Our scouts watch a lot of college baseball, so we stick to what we know there as opposed to looking at high school. There are some great high school players, certainly in the top part of the draft, but we leave those to those who see them in bulk and who might even see them in person. From a college perspective, it's a pitching-rich draft. I feel like this is kind of known if you're paying close attention. It feels like it's Jack Leiter, Kumar Rocker, and then everyone else. So let's start with them. Dom, how good is Jack Leiter right now, and what makes him so good? Really, the biggest thing about Leiter is his mechanics. They're spot on, and when you watch him, it's the same thing over and over again. You know, we compare him to Roy Oswald, where if you look at him, they're pretty similar. Another thing with Oswald is they have the same explosive fastball. They can spot it to any part of the plate, and uh, he mixes his pitches well. He plays his 12-6 curveball off that fastball, and especially when Leiter uses that fastball high in the zone, the curveball tunnels off of it, drops off that plane, and he could throw it as a strike, throw it as a ball, get swings and misses. It's impressive what he could do. He looks like he pitches like a major leaguer sometimes, the way he thinks. And one of the Biggest things when he threw his no-hitter, he had 16 strikeouts all in his fastball. So when he knows he has something working that day, he uses it, he goes with it. And it's just impressive to me how he takes the game on the mental side and runs with it. Seems very polished, which isn't surprising given his uh, relatives uh, having pitched in the major leagues. All right, Brandon, same question for Kumar Rocker. What separates those like two or the, what separates him from other guys is his slider is just disgusting. Like Oscar the Grouch went into his trash can. He would pull out Kumar Rocker's slider. Like that's how disgusting it is. And it's been like that since his freshman year. Dom kind of like mentioned how Leiter's fastball, he got 16 strikeouts on that. And Kumar Rocker's no hitter against Duke his freshman year in the Super Regional, 19 strikeouts, all 19 of them on that slider. And that slider has never really gone away from him. So that's kind of what separates the two of them and what makes him so elite. But he has that fastball that I think the problem with him is sometimes he loses his command or he loses control or it looks like an average fastball. And you never want a pitch to look average because if a pitch looks average to major league hitters, they've seen it so many times they're going to hit it. So I think for him, if he can ever get that explosive fastball, really get it up in the zone, really get that nasty slider. I watched a lot of John Smoltz growing up as a Braves fan in the South, watching TBS. And Kumar looks a lot like John Smoltz when he's at his very best. And that's his ceiling. He can definitely get there. But it's one of those things where he might fall in the, in the comp of like Joe Musgrove, just like a really good dominant starting pitcher. But he could definitely get to the point where he's a Hall of Famer because he has that kind of stuff where it just like absolutely explodes. And Jack Leiter is the same way. And you talk about bloodlines, like Kumar Rocker's dad played defensive tackle at Auburn and was really, really good and played in the NFL. So he has that athletic ability to go with that huge 6'5", 245 frame. I mean, he looks like a tight end 
on a pitching mound. So I mean that that's kind of that's kind of how good he he can be. But I think there are question marks about him. And you know, three years of just like watching him, people definitely have draft fatigue over him. And so maybe that's why he'll fall a little bit in this draft. But his stuff at the very best, I think he has the highest upside, even higher upside than than Leiter. Thinking of tight ends who are currently in Major League Baseball right now, and I would think guys like Aaron Judge or Shohei Otani certainly right. have uh, that kind of comparison. Uh, that's good. All right, so we got an Oscar the Grouch and that. So, uh, all right, that's fun. Tom, let me ask you this. Where's the edge for one over the other? Me and Brandon had this conversation so much throughout the season, and I always thought Leiter has the edge. You know, as you said, like he, his dad obviously in the majors, his uncle in the majors, so he has that mental side of it where he's more polished. He he seems to understand counts more. He's not afraid to work backwards. And his mechanics are always perfect too. Like I said, Rocker has the tendency to lose his mechanics sometimes and to lose his arm slot. So he get wild, but I mean, they're both just incredible pitchers. I would, I would take lighter just because of the mental side of it and everything like that. But either way, I don't think you can go wrong. All right, I'm a little wary of Brandon's Hall of Fame ceiling. But, uh, <laughs> well, so, that's we'll, the problem with Rocker is his ceiling is so high, he's probably Hall of Fame. But if you ask me today who I would take, I'd take Lighter because I think I'm getting a consistent ace, a consistent top-of-the-line starter, even mid-rotation starter type of guy, whereas Rocker, I might be getting a reliever. And that's where that's where it's kind of it's kind of worrisome. But like I just saw some footage of Brad Lidge before we got on. Like his slider is just as good as Brad Lidge's slider was when he was striking guys out. And like that's how good he can be as a reliever. So he can be even a wow. high ceiling reliever. But yeah, if you ask me today who I would take, it would be lighter. Because for me, when you're in a draft and you want to take a guy, you want a starter, a front of the line guy who's going to pitch 200 innings for you. And I see lighter more as that guy, whereas Rocker is like a workhorse and he can throw 200 innings. But we also didn't mention his velo dipped up and down the entire season. Like I, I was watching the Missouri game he pitched and he was throwing like 89, 92. So that's not a fastball you really want that's going to play in the major leagues, whereas like Jack Leiter's fastball has always been there. And I think his fastball is what's going to separate him from a guy like Rocker. If you're talking about right now, pure stuff, who's going to be a major league starter, it's probably going to be Jack Leiter. Nice. All right. With the uh, win, with the Oscar, the Grouch, <laughs> trashy uh, pitch, Kumar Rocker. So let's let's look at some of the other top pitchers in the MLB draft, college pitchers. We'll get to the position players in a second, but you had other pitchers in the top 10 in the articles that you wrote. Let's start, Brandon, with Ty Madden. What do you like about him and how do you project him? Yeah, I talked about this in the beginning of my article. I don't think he has a higher future value than most guys. I had him at 55. I had other guys at 60, like Hogland and Bachman and even Rocker at a 60, 65. Whereas is Madden's more like a 55, but I think Madden becomes an MLB player no matter what. I think he has that type of mechanics, that type of pedigree. His fastball is is above average. Like everything he does is above average. So I think he becomes a major leaguer at some point. And that's why he's so high on people's draft boards. Like if, if you draw up a prototypical right-handed power pitcher, that's the type of body type you want. That's the type of releases you want. That's that's the pitching like types you want from a guy like that, where you have the fastball, the slider, and then a developing changeup and a curveball. And that's where Madden, I think, separates himself from a, from some other guys like Hoglin or Bachman or even Cusick, who's later down in our in our board. I think Madden becomes a major leaguer at some point in some type of capacity. Um, I do see a lot of Carlos Carrasco. I had him as a ceiling for that. I think if he does everything right, 
He can become a Carlos Carrasco type of guy, but he might not make an all-star. He might just be like a really solid, solid pitcher. And that's what you want when you're drafting in the top 10. Like if you can get a guy who's going to throw in the middle of your rotation, you're doing something right. So I think Ty Madden is one of those guys and uh, he'll go early on draft day, July 11th. Nice. All right. So let's move on to another guy that you took a, a good close look at. Sam Bachman has two grade 70 pitches, 70 grade. He's from Miami of Ohio. So introduce us to him. The, the three spin profiles, the gyro spin, where guys are trying to get on the side of the ball and really like spin it like a football. You're really not trying to get like the movement, like the zero, zero. You're trying to get zero, zero, like horizontal, vertical. And then you're letting gravity like do the work. And I would say Rocker's slider is better than Bachman's. But look, if Rocker wasn't in this draft, if he didn't have the Oscar the Grouch slider, like we'd be talking about Bachman's slider being just the filthiest thing we've seen out of college from any guy this year. So Bachman's slider is is going to make him a major leaguer, I think, too. The problem with him is reliever risk. He has to develop that changeup, and he doesn't throw it enough, but it does have tendencies of like – I saw some people compare it to, and even his coaches compare it to, Luis Castillo. So, like, he has the metrics and the tendencies to make it a Luis Castillo type of changeup, but he needs to get there in terms of throwing it a lot more and being more confident. And, look, for a guy who faced Matt competition all year, like, he throws hard. He throws with movement. And it's just – it's really fun to watch him pitch in the sparing amount of times you can watch him pitch because you have to go look for the video. You have to go search for it to go watch him pitch. And he's he's just electric on the mound. I think that's what makes him so fun as a prospect is his ceiling is high because you can definitely, like, make him a starter like a Luis Severino had him as a ceiling. I think he could definitely be one of those guys. But then he does have a lot of reliever risk. He'll probably end up being a reliever if he doesn't figure out that third pitch. Nice. All right. So mid-major guy makes good. Uh, what about Gunnar Hogland? Uh, Hogland, I just love the control. Watching him pitch is like artwork. He kind of paints every corner. He throws a really good slider. He throws a good change up. It's just everything is like succinct. He's a lot like a guy we might talk about later, like Jordan Wicks, who just everything looks really good. The problem with him is he was a top 10 pick no matter what. Anybody, any publication would have him as a top 10 pick until he blew out his arm against Texas A&M and had to have Tommy John surgery. And I guess that would be the most concerning thing is like the injury past and just like coming back from Tommy John surgery. Like, how can he be coming back? But we've seen the success rate of Tommy John surgery and guys come back, you know, to the same level they are velocity wise. And they come back maybe even better than they were after Tom, Tommy John surgery. So I, I just really like Hogland and the way he like controls a game and controls the plate because he can throw the fastball, the slider, the changeup to basically any quadrant he wants. And that's really special in a college pitcher because you don't usually see that until a guy gets like three or four years deep into their major league career where a guy can spot pitches to any type of quadrant they want. Dom, uh, one other college pitcher in our top 10, Ryan uh, Cusick. Give us the uh, scouting report on him. Yeah, so Cusick is an interesting pitcher because when you watch him, he looks like one of the most dominant guys in the country. He has a fastball that can max out at around 101. And then he has a big curveball that 12 to 6 just drops right off. But the biggest issue for Cusick was his control. He had a lot of walks and he was very inconsistent with where where the pitches would end up compared to the catcher's location. If the catcher wanted it low, he was ended up in the middle of the plate. So if he can fix his control issues 
And I think it really comes from his mechanics. He looks like he loses his plant foot sometimes and can sometimes lean back with his upper body. And he misses a lot to his uh, arm side up and away. So I think if he fixes that, he can be one of the better starters in the league. I compare him to Tyler Glasnow because of his fastball and his great breaking ball. And as we just saw this year, Glasnow, before his unfortunate injury, he just added a slider slash cutter. So if Cusick could do that, I think he could be one of the best starters that we see come up in this draft, get like up there with uh, Madden, Leiter, and Rocker. But, you know, he, he's a toss-up because he's risky. He can He's going to need a lot of work in the minors, but I think if he puts it all together, which I think he will, he can definitely be a top-line starter in the majors. There's a lot of toss-up when it comes to the uh, MLB draft, certainly, uh, as much as uh, anything. All right, so let's go to the position players, and there's one that seems to be front and center, a catcher, Henry Davis. Uh, how does he comp overall? How would you compare him to Adley Rutschman, who uh, just went uh, number one? Him and Rushman, they're basically the same size. Davis is 6'1", 210, and Adley is 6'2", 220. But the biggest difference is Davis can't field. Behind the plate, he's a bit of a liability because he's so big. He has issues moving laterally. He has issues getting down to block balls in the dirt. When there's no runners on base, he will be on his one knee trying to block pitches in the dirt. But as we've seen in the majors, it's not really working out for a lot of catchers like that. There's more pass balls, more wild pitches. At the plate, Davis is an absolute monster. He crushes every ball he touches and he barrels it up. His contact is great. He has very good bats of ball skills. I think even better than Adley Rutschman's and his raw power too. It, it shows in the game when he hits it, it just sounds different off the bat. The biggest issue for him is that his barrel is flat through the zone where a lot of teams nowadays want the barrel to be coming up through the zone, get more fly balls which Rushman does very well. He has more of a more of a lift to his swing. So if Davis can do that, I think he'll be able to hit even more home runs than he did in college. But uh, we'll have to see if he grooves his swing like that. I like the flat swing, but some teams don't. So we'll have to see what happens as he progresses. Let's move to another uh, player that's in our top 10. We have four position players in the top 10 that we're going to discuss. Sal Freilich. Uh, Brandon, what's your take on him? I think Adam talked about us in his kind of report. He just oozes athleticism. He's an athletic guy who, when a push comes to self, he can hit the ball. And I think that's that's what's going to carry him to the majors is he can just flat out hit. And he'll play good defensive, outfield, second base, wherever you put him, he'll be fine defensively. But what's really going to put him – on the major league level is his ability to hit the ball. And he's always been able to do that. Whether he was his freshman year at Boston college up until now, he's always been able to hit the baseball. And so I think scouts are a little less worried about like, Oh, is this guy going to hit at the major league level? Cause I, I think he'll be able to hit no matter what. It just comes down to how high can he, that ceiling get for him? How high can he go in terms of being a hitter? But his defense is going to be good. His, his glove is going to be good. And you could put him anywhere on the field, um, maybe not first base, but outside of that, like anywhere. And he will play a good defensive position. He'll, he'll play good defensive second base, center field, right field, left field. It really just comes down to the fact that he can flat out hit and rake. And if it wasn't for Henry Davis, he'd probably be the best bat in college right now. And I think that's what makes Davis so special. It's like he's a hitter who's at the top as a catcher. 
And, you know, Fraley kind of plays that premium position too. Like he plays a center field or a second base where you want a guy who's able to hit at those positions because you, it's hard to find guys you can hit at those positions. Freelich's most flashy tool is his speed. His outstanding plate discipline is perhaps his most exciting tool, wrote Adam Land, who did the scouting report for yeah, us. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, too. Like, he walks a lot. Like, his OPS is going to be so high. And, yeah, his OPP is going to be high, too. So he's a very patient hitter as well. And I think Adam highlighted that a lot. Sounds like a very likable player. All right, Matt McLean, Dom, what do you got? McLean, he was one of my favorite players to watch this year. He... He has a very old school approach at the plate, and I love to see that kind of stuff. He He's just looking to hit the inside of the ball, put the ball in play, and he's not trying to lift the ball. He has a great approach at the plate. You could tell when he takes pitches, he he's very sure he wants to take a pitch. He's not in between when he wants, uh, whether or not he wants to swing or not. In the field, he's great at shortstop. He is on the small side, so I don't, he's around 5'10". So I don't know if he's going to be able to stay at shortstop. I predicted he's probably moved to second base, but at his time at UCLA, he played short. He played second base a couple of times and he played center field. So he has utility tools and I think his bat and his contact rate is going to, it's going to bring him to the, uh, the majors very quick because he's very low risk. You know where you're getting with him and he, I don't, he's just great to watch. He's very refreshing to see in this, time of uh, lifting the ball and trying to hit home runs at every at bat. Amazing bat to ball skills, low risk. I think uh, there are certain teams that will certainly lean that way. All right. One more in the top 10, Judd Fabian, uh, which was written by Adam Land. Dom, what do do we know about him? Judd's like a five tool player. He could field, he's fast. He has his great power bat for a smaller guy that plays the outfield. But I would say the biggest issue with him is his strikeout rate, which he struck out a lot this year. And he struggled a lot, and it was mostly during the first half of the year. In the second half of the year, we were able to see the real Judd Fabian where he was hitting home runs, he was making great plays in the outfield, stealing bases, just back to what we saw last year and in 2019. I definitely think we were higher on him than other outlets were. But I think that's because we believed in his second half of the year where he flashed that great power and like brought his K numbers down. So he's a little more high risk than uh, Matt McLean is, but his ceiling is probably higher because he has more room to improve than McLean. I like that you said that we had a rating that was a little different than some of the other outlets. I don't want us to all be the same. All right. So Dom, give us one guy outside the top 10 that you really like to round this out. Love you to do that. Well, I kind of have two. I have Will Bednar, who we saw in the College World Series, just absolutely putting on a show with his great slider and his uh, fastball that he got to 97. We considered him putting in the top 10, but there were just too many guys ahead of him. So we had him up there. And then another guy who I saw at the MLB Draft Combine was Alex Benalas of Louisville. He, in the Combine, his raw power really showed up more than I thought he had. And he really impressed me there on the field, too. I didn't think he would be able to stay at third base, but his footwork looked to improve, and his arm was better than I thought. So he's a guy to look out for in the draft, for sure. And Brandon, give us one guy. Uh, I mentioned earlier, Wicks, Jordan Wicks from Kansas State. He is the most consistent pitcher in this draft, and we really thought about putting him in the top 10. He's a lefty. He really has a complete pitching profile. He has the change up, the fastball, the slider, the curve, even those a little bit of a cutter and they all work exceptionally well. They're, they're average to above average. The thing with him is like, 
maybe some of them are not as elite as other pitches. So his fastball can just be average. Sometimes his slider can just be average. And like I said earlier, you don't want pitches to just be average to hitters. But I think Wicks will be the fastest guy to the majors. I think book him. He will be in a major league uniform in a year and a half. Like he is ready to pitch right now in the major leagues. His changeup is filthy. It's plus plus. And it's what he gets guys out with. It's just the question of how high can he be? I don't see him as like a high ceiling guy. He'll be a middle, middle of the rotation guy, but he will be very good for whatever team decides to draft him. And he just looks like a major leaguer right now. And he has the mental mental makeup too that, that Don was talking about with Lighter, just the mental makeup of I'm a major leaguer. And he, he showed that on on Big 12 hitters this year. He just dominated Big 12 hitters. He's been doing his entire career at Kansas State. He was a guy we were, we were really going back and forth on. Should we put him in the top 10 or should we not? Stuff to choose, just as it will be tough yeah. to choose for teams on Sundays, July 11th, uh, when the MLB draft begins. It's being held over All-Star Weekend this year, Sunday through Tuesday. Brandon and Dom, thank you for taking the time to join us and check out their work, sportsinfosolutionsblog.com. This wraps up this edition of the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. For Hunter Renfro, Luis Guillorme, Brandon Tu, Dominic Ricotta, and our producer Justin Stein, I'm Mark Simon. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS. 